My name is Stacey Abrams, and I'm running for governor of Georgia. I want to say thank you to Nancy for such a generous introduction. Uh, and what I want to do is repeat some of the stuff she said and tell you about myself, uh, because you shouldn't vote for me if you don't know me. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Public Access Access America. America. Uh, As Nancy pointed out, I'm actually... I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. I only lived there till I was three. I just remember being cold and cheese curds. That's about it. (laughs) Um, And my parents moved back to Mississippi, which is where they're originally from. My parents are from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My dad likes to say that he was from the wrong side of the tracks and my mom was from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, So they both grew up in, in fairly abject poverty in segregated Mississippi in the 1950s. My mom nearly dropped out of high school when she was in fourth grade because they couldn't afford the bus Uh, Because in the segregated schools, you couldn't get to school if you didn't take the bus. And her family, uh, her parents had gotten divorced. They had no money. And she, like the rest of her siblings, dropped out of school. And imagine being a fourth grader who decides your life is over. Uh, But luckily, there was a neighbor who helped my mom get back on her feet, helped a nine-year-old get back on her feet, and convinced her to go back to school. And my mother finished high school as the valedictorian of her high school. She's the only one of her seven siblings to finish high school. My dad is dyslexic. Uh, He grew up dyslexic in Mississippi in segregated schools, so they just told him he was stupid. Um, So my father didn't learn to read functionally until he was in his 30s by reading to my youngest sister. And so my father memorized his way through school. His two older sisters realized that he had this amazing oral memory. And so they would help him, they would read to him, and he would memorize things. And he found friends in class. And when he was around 15, he and my mom met. My mom was helping him with a class. Um, He says he wooed her. She says he stalked her. We don't talk about it too much. (laughs) 
but they eventually got together. They got married. Uh, they've been together for 48 years. And so my father finished high school, went off to college. My parents went to college together. My mom then got a graduate degree at the University of Wisconsin. That's where I was born, as was my uh, next sister. My parents were very prolific. There are six of us. And they moved back to Mississippi. Now, my parents went to school. They did all the things they were supposed to do. And when they got back to Mississippi, my mom got a job as a college librarian. And sometimes my mom made less money than the janitor who worked for that college. My dad, who had memorized his way through school, who's one of the smartest people I've ever known, my father couldn't get a job because he couldn't read. So even though he had a college degree, he couldn't get most of those inside jobs. And because he was African American, he wasn't given the benefit of the doubt. And so my dad was a shipyard worker. So despite doing all the things you're told to do, going to school, staying out of trouble, doing the right things, my parents found themselves exactly where they'd been before. A few rungs up the ladder, but still not out of poverty. Uh, we were working class or working poor, depending on the week. My mom didn't like working class or working poor, so she called us the genteel poor. We had no money, but we had class and we watched PBS. <laughs> um, and they were very intentional. They lived, we lived on the poor street on the middle class side of town so we could get zoned into the good school. And this is before GPS. So they had to just figure all this stuff out. And so you could tell because it was North Street, South Street, and then they started getting really fancy names. So we lived on South Street. But my parents were thoughtful about this because they understood that for their family, education was the thing that moved them and education was the thing that would move us. Education was going to be the linchpin, but they knew it had to be more. My mom's friend, the woman who helped my mom, also helped my mom in church. And my dad had been called into the ministry when he was younger. And so my parents also understood that faith had to be a central part of how they raised their children. And so as Nancy was kind enough to point out, my parents had three rules in our family. You had to go to church, you had to go to school, and you had to take care of each other. Uh, the taking care of each other was also about the six of us because my parents were too cheap and didn't have the money for babysitters, so we took care of each other. Uh, but it was also about us having an external understanding of service. Church was about our faith. We were Christian. But for my parents, it wasn't just about the tenets of our religion. It was about us having a belief in something larger than ourselves. Because for them, faith was about our souls. It was about us having a deeper understanding of who we are and why we were here. And they raised us to respect not only our faith, but the faith of others. They never taught us that our Christianity meant that we couldn't respect Judaism, we couldn't respect the Muslim faith, that we couldn't respect those who had no faith, who had not found a church, because they wanted us to understand what we believed. In fact, my dad said he wasn't taking us to heaven with him, so we had to figure it out on our own. <laughs> but they also believed in education. They had seen education move them up, and they wanted that for their children, because my parents never believed that we would be limited. They knew it would be hard, they knew it would be challenging, my parents never missed a, a parent-teacher conference. They never missed an event. And with six children, that's a lot. Uh, but they knew that if they could be there and be our champions and our advocates, that they could do so much for us. But they also understood a lot of parents didn't have that luxury. A lot of parents couldn't take off time. They couldn't make it. And so my parents were there for other families' kids because my parents understood what education could mean, especially to low-income communities, especially to poor black kids in Mississippi. And my parents produced in a single generation, my dad, who was the first man in his family to go to college, my mother, who's the only one of her siblings to finish high school, sent every single child of theirs to college, every one of us. 
most of us have graduate degrees, and a few of us decided to stay in school until somebody kicked us out. Uh, so I've got two sisters with PhDs because they're just really holy-toity. But my parents also believed in service, and, and that's one of the reasons I'm here. Because my parents taught us that no matter how little we had, there was always someone with less, and it was our job to serve that person. And what that meant was that we might not have running water in the house on certain days. We may not have the electric bill paid. Cable was a luxury, and like everyone had to get straight A's, and there had to be, you know, a, you know the autumnal moon had to line up appropriately, and then we could have cable for a couple of weeks. But they wanted us to know that we had more than a lot of folks. And so they would take us to volunteer soup kitchens to see families who did not know where their next meal would come from. They took us to homeless shelters because they wanted us to see that there were people who didn't know where their heads would be laid at night. They would take us to volunteer in juvenile justice facilities because they wanted us to understand there were children who had no freedom, whose parents had not been able to take care of them. My parents wanted us to understand that we had something and it was our responsibility to share, not to wallow. My parents were also very deeply manipulative and it worked. And so all of us have found a way to serve. I've done it in a way that my mother calls my trajectory of downward economic mobility. So, uh, as Nancy pointed out, I moved from Mississippi to Atlanta when I was about 15. My parents decided to make our poverty permanent. They became Methodist ministers. Uh, so they went to Emory University. They both went to school at the same time. So my parents went to school full time, raised six kids full time, and served. Uh, they, my older sister just started college. I, was at, I graduated from Avondale High School, went to Spelman, went off to grad school, went on to law school, then had to get a real job, but came back to Atlanta. But the reason I'm running for governor, the reason I'm here tonight, is because service is who I am. Because the experiences I've had, the life that I've lived, has taught me that success is possible for everyone. And that too often we're taught to believe that success is something ephemeral that belongs to a certain group of people. And that you can only do so much, but you're not going to ever quite make it. I remember one day um, when we were living in Gulfport, my dad worked for Ingalls Shipbuilding. Ingalls is about 40 miles from where we grew up. And my father would have to hitchhike to work. Well, he would take a, get a ride to work with Mr. Luther, who was this man who lived in our neighborhood. I think I was like 20 before I knew he had a last name besides Mr. Luther. Uh, it's Luther Heidelberg. And he had this brown van, and he would pick up the men in the neighborhood who worked at Ingalls, which was the largest employer on the Gulf Coast. And they would drive the 40 miles to Ingalls. But on days when my dad had to work multiple shifts, dad would have to hitchhike back. And so imagine hitchhiking late at night, coming home, taking a nap, and then waking up for a 6 a.m. shift. And on those nights when dad had to hitchhike and it was cold and it was rainy, my mom would take pity on him and pile all of us into the one car we owned. My older sister, Andrea, would take one window. I'd take the other. The rest of the kids would be asleep in the back. And we'd drive down Highway 90 looking for my dad as he hitchhiked his way back home. And I remember one, it was around Christmas time, Dad had worked two or three shifts, and it was really cold outside, it was really wet, and we're driving down the highway, and we see my dad, and we pull off to the side of the highway so he can get in the car. And he gets in the car, and he turns up the heat really high, because he's wet and he's shivering, and my mom looks at him, and she yells, she's like, Robert, where's your coat? Because he only had one coat, and it was gone. And he was, she was afraid he'd left it at, at Ingalls, and Dad said, no, I, I gave my coat to this homeless man on the beach. And my mom looked at him, she's like, oh, okay. Andrea and I looked at each other, we're like, we get yelled at for losing a sock, and Daddy gives away his coat? 
And so I look at Andrea, and she looks at me, and I'm like, you're the oldest, you ask. <laughs> and so she says, Daddy, why would you give that man your coat? You don't have another one. And my father told us, he said, because that man on the beach was alone. And when I left him, he would still be alone. But I knew you were coming for me. I'm running for governor because I am coming for Georgia. I am coming for Georgia. I am coming for those families that have done everything they've been told to do and still can't quite make ends meet. The families who work more than one job, who work 80 hours a week and still can't quite take care of their families. Not because of their labor, but because we don't believe in labor in Georgia anymore. I'm coming for those families that go to school and do what they can for their children, but because they can't take off time from work to be there every day, they can't make certain that those schools treat their children the right way. Make sure their kids aren't tracked into the wrong classroom simply because they had a bad day at home, because sometimes poverty is hard and children can't process. I'm coming for those families that do all the things we say they should do, but because they live south of Macon, we don't believe their counties deserve economic development. That's the Georgia that I want to serve. Because we have families that are in the middle class that want to rise. We have families in the lower, in the working class that want to simply survive. And we need to believe that all of them can succeed. And I'm running for governor because I know it is possible because it happened for me. It happened for my family. I had a fight with a legislator once who said that my family was proof that you didn't need social welfare programs. I'm like, did you hear what I said? <laughs> and he's like, well, no, no, your parents, I was like, we were, I've had commodity cheese. It is an amazing orange color that cannot occur in nature. Now, my parents made sure we didn't stay on welfare for too long, but we had to use it. I, I'm, I'm not in the legislature because people shouldn't have my parents. I'm in the legislature because not everyone gets to have my parents. I'm in the legislature because I have cousins who've never been more than five miles from where they grew up in Mississippi and will die on the same job that they had when they were 15. That's why I'm running for governor. Because in the state of Georgia, we have the capacity to do so much more. We have limitless potential, and we hold ourselves back because of who we are and who we see. We are a state that is gifted with natural resources, but more importantly, with people who have boundless potential. And if we aren't willing to see it and harness it, we don't deserve the victories that can come our way. I'm running for governor because too many people have been left out and left behind, and we spend too much time talking about survival. We do not talk about success. We don't talk about paths to prosperity, unless you live in the right zip code on the right street on the right day. But I know we can do better because I've seen it happen. And so there are three things I believe that we can do that I can do as governor and that you can do with me to change Georgia. The first is that we have to educate bold and ambitious children. A lot of folks are gonna talk about education. We all know education's important. But it's what kind of education do we want for our children? We have to start with high quality daycare because a child's brain starts to form from the moment he or she arrives on this earth. And we can't wait till they're three to decide they're worth our time and our attention. And more importantly, parents can't be spending time trying to make a living and worrying about whether their child is going to be able to start life on the right foot. That's the state's responsibility both in education and economic development, and we can afford to do better. But we also have to expand pre-K. Starting at four years old is not early enough. Three-year-olds deserve to have access to full education. In Georgia, we can afford it. It costs $4,500 per classroom. 
I'd rather spend $4,500 on a three-year-old than $160,000 on a juvenile delinquent. Because if we're willing to invest early, we can save their lives and change their future. That's what we can do in Georgia. But I also believe that we have to have high quality K through 12 where we stop talking about adequacy and we start talking and investing in excellence. And that means lower class sizes, that means paying teachers more, but it also means what we teach in those classrooms. There are classrooms that teach robotics to preschoolers, that teach coding to fourth graders. And the problem is none of you have probably ever seen those classrooms unless you live in the right zip code. But every child in Georgia deserves that education because those are the jobs of the future and it's our responsibility to train them for those jobs today, to believe they deserve those jobs. There's a theory called high equilibrium, low equilibrium. And it says that in high equilibrium states, you train your children for jobs of the mind. And in low equilibrium states, you, change, you train your, jobs, your children for jobs of the hands. Georgia trains our children to be service workers. We don't believe that they're gonna to get to be more. We don't believe they deserve to be more. And I'm a governor who believes in every child every day. I'm a, I would be a governor who believes that we should do more for every single child starting from the day they come into our care. That they deserve not only high quality, excellent K through 12 education, but they deserve free technical college. And if they want to go into an apprenticeship, we should make that possible and they should be able to afford higher education. Because a B should not be the only marker of your success. I know a lot of really smart C students who are now in charge of a lot of people with a lot better grades. <laughs> we should invest in children no matter who they are or whose they are. That's first. Secondly, we have to build a thriving and diverse economy for the state of Georgia in all 159 counties. As I said, I'm on a trajectory of downward economic mobility. I've tried to stall my fall, but I'm, I've been only okay at it. And I started out as a tax attorney. I then was deputy city attorney. When I decided to run for office in 2006, I had to quit my job at the city. I didn't have to, but I thought it would be, I had ethics if not everyone else did. So I thought it would be problematic to be the city attorney and be a state legislator, so I quit my job. Uh, but then I realized I'd like living inside my house, so I had to find a new one. And it's hard to get someone to hire you when you tell them that you only plan to work part-time uh, if, if I win this election. And so I started my first company. I am a reluctant entrepreneur. I really like paychecks. They make me very happy. Uh, but I learned to start a business. I learned to find clients. I was successful in some ways. And there were businesses I started that failed miserably. And from that, I learned what it takes to succeed and what it takes to fail. And one of the th reasons that we have not built enough jobs in Georgia, it's not that we don't bring enough jobs. It's that we expect people to have too many of them. We have a lot of folks who don't need a new job. They need one job that pays them a living wage, that pays them a prevailing wage, that pays them a wage that can actually lift their families up. And we can afford to do that if we do something different in Georgia. First, we have to stop stealing companies from other states promising to underpay the workers when they get to Georgia. That's what we do wrong. That's not economic development, that's theft. Economic development is when you actually put money into a community to grow jobs so people can grow their community and take care of their families, and we can afford to do that. And we can do it immediately, and we can do it in every single county in Georgia. One of the companies I started is called Now Account. We actually purchase invoices from small businesses to get them access to capital now. Clever name, Now Account. 
But the reason we do that is that for a lot of companies, they just need a little infusion of capital so they can start paying their workers and taking on bigger contracts. So instead of getting a great headline by stealing a company, why not take those same dollars and invest in the businesses right here at home and invest in the businesses that could be grown at home? I was in Macon at the beginning of my campaign, and I met a woman named Pam. Pam has two daughters, both of whom are off to college. And one of her daughters has now given birth. And Pam is about to start raising children again because she knows that her children have to go to college if they're going to have a future. And so she's going to raise her daughter's infant for the next four years. And so I asked Pam, what do you want? And she said, what do you mean? I said, what do you want for you? She said, well, I just told you. I want my daughters to be successful. I want my granddaughter to be successful. And I said, but what do you want for you? And she looked at me and said, no one had ever asked what she wanted for herself. She's like, I've been, a Piggly, I've been the cashier at Piggly Wiggly for 20 years, and no one has ever asked me if I want it more. I said, so I'm asking, what do you want? She said, I want to start a daycare center. I want to train these young women on how to raise children. I want to be able to take time to raise this, my granddaughter so that she doesn't make mistakes, but no one will ever invest in me because I only have a high school diploma. We should be willing to invest in Pam Inc. the same way we're willing to invest in Coca-Cola Inc. Because Pam, if she creates that new daycare center, Pam creates jobs in South Macon, she changes lives, and she changes the way we think about our state. That's how we build a thriving and diverse economy. We do it by creating advanced energy jobs across the state of Georgia. We do it by investing in technology and recognizing that not every company has to turn you into a millionaire, but we can be a state of a lot of really happy thousandaires, and that should be our mission. That's how we change Georgia. And our third responsibility, once you have educated bold and ambitious, when you, ambitious children, when you have built a thriving and diverse economy in all 159 counties, we have to have an educated and empowered government that actually works for everyone. I have five brothers and sisters. My oldest sister, Andrea, is the first person of color to be a tenured professor at Center College in Kentucky. My sister, Leslie, is the first black woman to be a federal judge in the history of the state of Georgia. My brother, Richard, is a social worker who works with foster kids in Fulton County. My sister, Janine, is an evolutionary biologist at the CDC who's doing something that will probably kill us all. <laughs> But I have a brother, a brother Walter. Walter went to college just like the rest of us, but Walter grew up with an undiagnosed mental illness. My brother Walter is bipolar, but we didn't know it until about four or five years ago. Walter's been self-medicating since he was a teenager, and he went from marijuana to crack and from crack to heroin, and Walter's now serving time in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Walter's in jail because Walter's done terrible things to feed his habit. But Walter probably wouldn't have had a habit if my parents had had health insurance and if they could have gotten him tested when he was younger and they tracked him because he was a young black man who was rambunctious and had mood swings. And instead of being told that he had issues, they could have been told he has issues. See if you can get him help. But they didn't because that wasn't what we got. And we were in Georgia by that time. So Walter never got the help he needed because my parents couldn't afford it which is why in the state of Georgia, if we want to be the state I believe we can be, we have to expand Medicaid immediately. No family should go through this. 
Not only can we save 500,000 lives, we can create 56,000 new jobs. We can provide health insurance that includes mental health care to thousands of Georgians. And we can change the way insurance is provided in the state of Georgia to make sure every family has access to the full slate of support that they need to take care of their children. That's what we have to do in the state of Georgia, and that's what good government looks like. But we also have to understand that Walter's a criminal now. My brother has committed some terrible crimes, and he's not really good at it, which is why he's in jail. <laughs> but Walter's going to get out of jail. He actually served a year and was released. But in the state of Mississippi, they didn't offer a reentry program. Now, he couldn't live with my parents. They're raising my niece, his daughter. And he couldn't live in the same house with her. And so Walter had to find a place to live. But in Mississippi, as in Georgia, if you have a felony record, they're not going to rent you a house. They're not going to rent you an apartment. So my sisters and I, we jerry-rigged. I talked to a landlord and got him into a place that, unfortunately, put him in the same company of people that he shouldn't have been around. But it was the only place we could find for him. And we tried to find him a job. But you're not going to hire an ex-con even one like Walter, because Walter failed. He dropped out of college, so he didn't have a college degree. And so Walter couldn't get a job. He was a day laborer. And the minute jobs stopped coming, Walter had a crisis, and Walter reoffended. And he's back in prison serving the balance of his time. Georgia has to believe in the families that are like my brother Walter. Because as much faith and as much tr how much joy my parents take in my five brothers and sisters, they love Walter as much as they love my sister Leslie. One's a judge and the other's a felon. But my parents understand that both are their children. And Georgia has to have the same belief in those who've done exceptionally well in our state, those who've done okay, and those who've made terrible mistakes. And so we have to have a governor who is committed to continuing the work in criminal justice reform in the state of Georgia, because we can't afford not to. In 2013, Georgia had the fourth highest incarceration rate in the nation. And those folks are going to get out of jail. And the question is, do we welcome them and help reintegrate them, or do we prepare them to go back? And I believe that if we are the Georgia I know we can be, we will welcome them with open arms. We will help them rehabilitate, because we are a state that believes in redemption, and that should be the Georgia we lead. That is the Georgia I want to lead. We also have to understand that the rights in the state of Georgia are not permanent. They're not guaranteed. Civil rights are fought for every single day. That is why we continue to fight our Secretary of State to have the right to vote 240 years after we said that that's what we believe for America. We have to fight for the right to vote because it will never be a guarantee until the rest of us are in charge. But we have to not only defend against voter suppression, we have to defend the LGBTQ rights that we thought we got when the, when the Windsor case was passed. We have to understand that in Georgia, you can be fired for being who you are. And that allies like myself has a, have much responsibility to stand up for those families as anyone else. Because no one's civil rights are safe, and therefore, everyone has to defend civil rights every single day. That is what I would do as the next governor of Georgia. Civil justice, we have to have access. Environmental issues, we have to start thinking about these things every single day because the future of our state depends on us having a state to live in. We have to be willing to think about a lot of things at the exact same time, and I know we can, because I've done it. 
As minority leader, I not only helped to stop there ever being a supermajority in the House, the House has never had one. I've flipped six Republican seats and held them for the last eight years. They have never had a supermajority in the House of Representatives. Thank you. I raised $2.9 million as minority leader to not only flip those seats, but to also help take the Henry County DA's race. I've helped in small counties and small communities across the state because I'm a Democrat. And because as a Democrat, I believe unabashedly in the fact that we have to lift up, lift up our folks if we want to change the state. And so I've not just talked about the work, I've done the work. I've done it quietly, often without people knowing about it, because that's what you do if you want to be a leader. You get things done. But I've also worked with Republicans to stop terrible things from happening. Because when you're the minority leader, they put it in your title. You're not going to win. My job is to lose really well. <laughs> but I didn't stop there. I made sure that I worked with Republicans when we had to. And I know some folks might want to know about the Hope Scholarship. And I'll address it very, very briefly. In 2011, the Hope Scholarship was on the brink of exhaustion. It was going to go bankrupt. Everyone knew it. We'd ignored it for years. And we finally hit a wall. Now, there are some who would argue that we should have waited and waited out the Republicans and let them do what they were going to do, because they told us what they were going to do. They were going to put an ACT, SAT requirement on the Hope Scholarship, which meant if you were a poor kid, never mind. If you were a student of color, forget it. You were never going to see the Hope Scholarship again. Now, there are those who said we should let them do it or we should have waited. We shouldn't have made a deal. But I'd been in the legislature for four years by then. My first year in the legislature, the first time I went to the well, it was to stop the Republicans from putting in place a law that said you could be put to death in Georgia with just nine votes because they thought 12 was too many. And then we only beat that bill by a handful of votes. I was in the legislature when they tried to outlaw allowing immigrant children to go to Grady Hospital because they said if you didn't have papers, you didn't deserve care. That bill almost passed in the Georgia legislature. And so I wasn't going to take a risk that the Republicans were suddenly going to be on the road to Damascus and change their minds. Because you don't play chicken with folks who don't mind if they crash the car with your children in the front seat. That's why I worked with Republicans on the Hope Scholarship. And that's why I will always take a stand to help make certain that good things get done. Now, I wasn't pleased with what happened, but it was better than what they wanted to do because we saved pre-K. We, we maintained the Hope Scholarship. Folks lost a little bit of money, but we created a 1% low interest loan program to help them out. But more than that, we created the space so that we could do more and get more back. And over time, we've actually been able to claw back a lot for the Hope Scholarship. But I believe that as governor, the goal isn't to change the Hope Scholarship. It's to create a scholarship for low-interest loans, but more importantly, for free college for anyone who has financial need to go back to the original Hope Scholarship that Democrats actually undid in 1995. That's what we can do with a good governor in the White And I was going to go to the White House. I'm not going there yet. <laughs> Fairy is the word, the W I should have used. <laughs> but, but I talk about all these things to say this, and, and, and I will end here. Georgia has opportunity. We are a state that is fast changing. We are a diverse state. We are one of the most diverse states in the nation. We are the most diverse state in the Deep South. We have financial opportunity. We have intellect beyond capacity. We are diverse in our economics, in our gender, in our race, in our backgrounds, and we can harness it and turn it into a tool 
It can be our strength or it can be a weapon used against us. And the other side wants to use it as a weapon. I don't. I've done the work I've done. I've registered 200,000 people of color since 2014 because I know the capacity of Georgia. Then when we pull together a coalition of people of color, of progressive whites, and of disaffected folks who don't really care what color they are, or what party they are, they just want good help, that we can win elections in Georgia. Because we don't lose because we don't have the numbers. We lose because we don't have faith. We lose because we don't talk to our folks. And as Pave It Blue knows better than anyone, you have to knock on the apartment doors that nobody goes to if you want to get new people to turn out. You have to go to places where you've been told not to go. And there are going to be folks who, on our side of the aisle who say, don't go there, don't talk to them, because they're not going to vote. Well, of course they're not going to vote if we don't ask. And you can't ask them on day one and expect them to turn out on day two. You've got to ask them on day one, day two, day 20, day 250. But if we do the work, by November of 2018, we will turn out the million low-propensity Democrats and get them to go to the polls and get them to take back our state. Because we need 200,000 votes to win, but with a million solid Democrats turning out for the first time, we will not only change governor's mansion, we can change tickets all up and down the ballot, and we can take back our state. Because if we want to pave it blue, we've got to be willing to drive everywhere and do everything. And there is not a person standing for this office, Democrat or Republican, male or female, black or white, who will do more to win this election than I will. I've done it for the last seven years, and I will do it forever, because I believe in Georgia, and I believe in you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Public Access America, history in the making, making, history in the making. Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download 
download the app for free and subscribe to Public Access America to get more episodes like this in your feed every day. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.